0: Well, I wonder if in your life you've ever had an experience where you were waiting on something important to come through for you. For my seven-year-old daughter, Julianne, it was recently the school play, a part in the school play. So we, she worked hard on this poem that she had to recite for her audition, this song that she had to sing as she auditioned. And we found out this week she got a part. And she was so excited. I think my wife and I were more excited than she was about it, but she was excited after this period of waiting, of waiting hopefully for a part in the school play. Frankly, it sounds like all the kids got a part in the play, but anyway, we were still excited that this had come through for her. But I wonder about in your life, I I wonder if there's been a situation or something that you were waiting on, hopefully, to come through in your life that you genuinely felt like it could change your life. Maybe it would change your, the trajectory of your life. Maybe it was a school that you were applying for and that was sort of a reach for you. Maybe it was a career change that you were trusting God with. Or I think of some of my friends who have immigrated to this country who just wait, hopefully, for the process to work itself out as they wait for visas and green cards. At the end of Chapter 3 of Ruth, which we explored last week, Ruth and Naomi are in this same position of waiting. They're hopefully waiting And just by way of review, whether or not you've been tracking with us over these weeks, this Ruth is this woman from Moab. And Ruth has shown this incredible loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so Ruth, after her own husband has died, after Naomi's husband has died, they return together to Israel. Things are a little better there now, but their future there is still uncertain. And so we've seen how they just kind of eke out this existence together as they pick grain in the field of a generous man named Boaz. And, but Naomi wants more for Ruth. Naomi wants more for herself, and so they're trusting God with that. Naomi wants a husband for Ruth. Naomi wants a home in which she can settle And so last week in Ruth 3, we saw that strange encounter where Naomi and Ruth take matters into their own hands and they approach this Boaz, they approach this relative who could possibly deliver them from their desperate situation. And it all culminates in Ruth essentially proposing marriage to this Boaz. To say, Boaz, be the answer to your own prayer that we saw in chapter 2 that we might be covered, that you might cover us. That you might provide for us. That you might redeem us. And after that risky move that they make, that bold move, things seem favorable with Boaz. Things seem good. But he also mentions a new obstacle, a new wrinkle in the story. Boaz explains to them that there's a closer relative who has priority. There's someone else who... He needs to honor in the process who has priority in deciding whether or not to intervene in their desperate situation. At that point, maybe they're thinking, maybe it's not going to work out with this kind Boaz after all. The point is, they've done everything they can. They have trusted God. They have been bold, and now they just wait. They wait for this legal process to unfold that will determine their future. And it's at that point that we pick up our text this morning in chapter 4. Today, we see how the story ends up. We see how the story resolves. We see the happy ending. But this, this incredible book of Ruth about little common people in Israel, whose, whose lives and whose faith and whose trust just is, happens to be enshrined for us in God's word. What is the big picture of it all? What is the takeaway? What is the summary of this narrative? Well, I might summarize it this way it shows us that God honoring people pursuing God given opportunities participate in God saving purposes. God-honoring people, pursuing God-given opportunities, participate in God's saving purposes. That's my thesis. That's my thought. That's not only the, the framework that I see in the book of Ruth, and that's not only my framework for this message today, but I think it's also a framework and a pattern for us, for you, as a people of God, as you trust Him, as you seek to honor Him, and as He carries out His purposes in your life and through your life. So as we now turn to chapter 4, as we turn to this resolution of the story, let us first pray that God might open our eyes. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. We thank you how we have seen your hand on these people who sought to honor you. Lord, as we look at chapter 4, help us to connect with this story personally that we might find our place in your bigger redemptive story in this world. And so, God, by your Spirit, open our hearts and our eyes this morning to receive from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the the first feature of Ruth, I think, that we've seen is these God-honoring people. And throughout the book of Ruth, Boaz has acted honorably. He's a person of noble character, the text tells us. Even before his dealings with Ruth and Naomi, who he just kind of providentially runs into, he's regarded that way in the society. He's a man of noble character. But we also see that he honors God's law, he honors God's word in many respects, in his business practices, allowing foreigners and the poor like Ruth to come and glean in his fields. He also honors God's law in following through on this legal process of redemption that we see play out in this story. And we see how he does that, how he implements that right at the very beginning of our chapter this morning. Boaz convenes this gathering, this gathering of elders of the town. And he brings in this closer relative that he has mentioned in chapter 3. And they gather there at the city gate, the city gate being a place where this sort of business would be worked out oftentimes. And he gathers them all there, and he is in this moment honoring Ruth's bold request. He is also honoring this other kinsman, this other family member who is a nearer relative. He tells this man in verse 4, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. So Boaz has honored God's law. He's honored the process. He's honored the individuals involved. So that's Boaz. But Ruth has also proven herself honorable as well. Ruth has, has shown incredible loyalty to her mother in law, and the whole community is well aware. This Moabite foreigner, Ruth, who did not abandon her mother in law in her desperate situation, but accompanies her to Israel. And so she has shown honor. And Boaz points to this honor back in chapter 3. In verse 10, after that strange encounter on the threshing floor where Ruth essentially proposes marriage to Boaz, he points out, This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. See, Ruth could have chased other men. She was still of, of eligible marriage age, of childbearing age, she, she very well could have run off and figured out her own path and perhaps left Naomi behind. But instead, what she does is follow this other path that was built into Israel's society and process of redemption for families like hers, for circumstances like theirs, and I trust that she knew that, that by going, that walking this path would ensure the best possible outcome for her, but also for Naomi. And so God has his hand on these people. God has his hand on these God-honoring people through whom he is advancing his purposes. But this morning, by God-honoring people, I don't mean just perfect people. I don't mean just the perfectly pious people, the perfectly well-adjusted people. I don't just mean people without struggles, people without stuff. Think for a minute about our characters, after all. We have Ruth, who grew up in an idolatrous system of Moabite religion, No doubt she had things to unlearn. She had things that she had to let go of as she was going to embrace this new people, this new God as her own. She probably had fear. She probably had doubt. She may have had anxiety as she is even in the process of walking in loyalty with her mother-in-law to a place that was foreign to her. I'm sure she thought, did I make the right choice? And then there's Boaz. I'm speculating a little bit here, but Boaz may have had his own baggage, his own generational baggage, if you will. We notice in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy there, too. And that genealogy lists Boaz as the son of Rahab and Salmon. Rahab, you might remember, is this Canaanite prostitute that we encounter in the book of Joshua, and so she is, she is caught up in some bad choices, perhaps trapped in them. But she at the same time demonstrates a faith in the God of Israel as the true God. And as a result, she and her family are saved. And the text says they are brought into the family of Israel. That's not the only, only kind of brokenness we may face you may face in your own story, there's all sorts of stuff, isn't there? There's all sorts of addiction and relational brokenness and other darkness that kind of clouds us in our lives at times. So they had stuff, but they sought to honor God. We have stuff, you have stuff. But living a God-honoring life says, God, I want to honor your word and your will. I I want to trust you. I want to follow your ways. I want you to heal me and change me. And God, whatever I've come from, wherever I've been, whatever the past has looked like, God, I want you to write a new story in my life and in my generation. So God-honoring people. God honoring people in whose lives the hand of God was at work. Of these individuals that we follow in this story, they, in their character, in their choices, in their sacrifices, they want to honor God's word and his will. But we also see Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi pursuing their God given opportunities, pursuing God given opportunities. Throughout this narrative, throughout this story, we've seen the hand of God providentially at work. Ruth just so happens to go pick grain in this field of a relative redeemer who turns out to be kind and generous toward them. A relative who who had a duty and an obligation to them according to God's law in that place. And then Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, just so happens to show up as she is gleaning in his field, and he takes notice of her. He sees that she's particularly vulnerable, and he goes out of his way to protect her and provide for her. So Boaz has his God-given opportunity. But then Ruth and Naomi do as well. They, They sense the hand of God perhaps offering them a way out of their situation. They sense that God is offering them an opportunity They sense that the hand of God is maybe offering them refuge. But what's common to both stories, too? It's a sense of risk. It's a sense of risk. The very end of verse 4 tells us as, as Boaz has gathered this, convened this gathering of the elders and this closer relative. The text tells us that this close relative does initially accept this offer to redeem the land. But then Boaz explains the other part of this deal in verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So that's the new layer added here. That, that is what Boaz is more than willing to take on, it seems, but we get a different response from the closer relative who in verse 6 says, "Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. I see the closer relative calculating in his mind what's at stake here. He, he probably realizes that if he takes in this foreigner Moabite as a wife, he might lose some respect in that society that disdained Moabites. He probably realized that providing for these new members of his household, of Ruth and Naomi, and managing their own land, that would just be a drain on his own resources, he probably thought. He probably knew where this was leading. He probably knew what the expectation was that as he took on this wife and as he sought to continue that widow's honor and family name that he would be expected to maybe provide a child through her who would then just become the heir and the owner of this property anyway. So why buy what I can't keep? Maybe he thought. Well, for us, for you, as God-honoring people, pursuing God-given opportunities, you may be faced with risk as well. And I don't don't mean risky investments. I don't mean unnecessarily risking safety or any of that. But I I mean risk in, in the real sense of how the world may look at our lives. Risk in the sense of no real profit for you other than an eternal reward that we trust God with. Risk in the sense of no return financially to your prestige, to your reputation, just as you obey God and follow Him. As you make choices, as you do that, as you trust God, questions may emerge. Questions like, why are you reaching out to that guy? He's too far gone. Don't waste your time. Questions like, why are you giving money to ministry? What good will that do? Questions like, why are you leaving a great career to do that? You're crazy. Why are you being so generous toward them? They'll never pay you back. Why are you going to serve in that community? Don't you know what the crime is like there? Or, yeah, I I realize what they're doing is not right, but don't waste your time. Just keep your head down. It looks like different things as we follow God. But what the world sees as risky, God may use for an eternal reward in your life. In the lives of others, oftentimes in ways that we may never know or never see. These individuals knew their risks. Boaz knew his risks, his liabilities. Ruth and Naomi knew their risks as they were bold, but they sought to honor God and to do what was right and to trust Him. So the hand of God is on those who honor Him, those who are honoring His word and His. Will And then in front of people like that, God has been laying God-given opportunities. But as we see in the end, it all works together for his saving purposes. We see the end of the story. We see that Boaz does redeem this land of Elimelech, who had been Naomi's deceased husband, And he does take Ruth as a wife and take in Naomi. But not only that, what comes out of this new union is a child. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. This son they named Obed means servant of God. And presumably this son would, would, would fulfill this whole process of redemption that this whole story is moving toward. He would carry on the family name. He would retain family ownership of this property. He would also provide rest and refuge that, that at the beginning of the story, we weren't sure if it would come for Ruth and Naomi and their family. The story starts with this Naomi bitter empty, and in the end, her hope is restored in the promise of God. We notice also those who, who watch this, this beautiful restoration, this beautiful redemption at play. Women are gathered around, and they see this child, and what, when I looked at the text, what at first glance seemed to be a blessing of this Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, is in fact a blessing of this child who is in his own way, now a redeemer for them. Verse 14, the woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. So this son, this new son, is the redeemer they speak of. But of course, as we think about God's saving purposes in this story, as we think about the big picture, this genealogy at the end is not to be missed. Which says, Boaz was the father of Obed, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. David. King David, a man after God's own heart, we are told. King David, the one to whom God promised a son whose reign and whose throne would never end. It would be established forever. And then a thousand years later, many, many generations later, comes Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate at this time. The Messianic King, the Son of God. Boaz, Ruth, Naomi, they just live their quiet lives of faith, of, of, of God-honoring choices and sacrifices and integrity. And their little lives are, just happen to be enshrined for us in God's word. They're little people, but God wants to highlight their story, their faithfulness. They live their quiet lives, and they can never imagine the saving purposes that would flow from From Ruth comes not only a redeemer for Naomi and for her, but a redeemer for the whole world, for you, for me. Friends, in us and around us, God's saving purposes are carrying on all the time. There's people in your life and in my life who God is drawing to himself. There's people in this room this morning whom God is drawing to himself. There are signs of God's kingdom that he wants to work out in and through your life. Bring his kingdom to this world, healing, restoration that he intends through you. As we close this morning and as we wrap up this series in Ruth, I want you to remember that this little book, this fascinating little book is a pattern and a pointer. It's a pattern and a pointer. It's, It's a pattern not only for these faithful individuals, but in some sense for our lives as well. Because as we honor God, as we engage the opportunities that he gives us, we participate in his saving purposes. What a thought. What a reality for us. That we are full participants with him, and we may see, we may never see, but we trust him. But maybe more importantly, it's a pointer. It's a pattern. It's a pointer. It's a pointer to the work of God in Jesus Christ, who came for us, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, the ultimate Redeemer. Because just like Naomi and Ruth started out destitute and poor and hopeless in this world, our sin and our rebellion against God has left us in a state of spiritual poverty, lostness, spiritual darkness. But through Jesus Christ, God takes us and redeems us for himself. Not only that, he restores in us the joy of being his sons and daughters. He restores for us the hope of eternal life, and he restores for us our calling to participate with him in his mission. Church, this Advent season, this Christmas season that we're in the midst of as we worship, as we reflect, as we celebrate, may we embrace this gospel, this good news that we have been redeemed and that his story is unfolding in our lives all the time. Let us pray. God, we thank you for, again, for your word. We thank you that it points to you. Lord, in this season of preparation, of Advent, of Christmas to come, we celebrate you as the great Redeemer who came to deliver us from our situation. God, may we honor you. May we respond to the opportunities that you give us, that we may be part of your saving purposes in this world. So we trust you for that. Would you give us courage? Would you give us a heart of worship and appreciation this season? In Jesus' name, amen.